Hello and welcome to a brand new series of Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Now listen, I don't want to sound bitter, but I was contacted by someone who was making a programme for BBC Radio 4 about all the poet laureates who had been in office during the reign of Queen Elizabeth II and they asked me if I would present it and I was very pleased to do that. So I hadn't really thought about the whole Poet Laureate thing properly, so I read around it, thought about it, wrote some stuff about it, read a lot of the poetry of the people involved and actually got pretty interested in it. Um, But then I thought, time's getting on. It's it's odd they haven't got in touch with me again. And then the programme was broadcast with someone else presenting it. And no explanation, no sorry, not even a no thanks. But, as I say, if if I really wanted to be bitter, I would point out the fact that they got an Oxbridge man to do it, who sounded obviously a lot more Radio 4 than I do. If I wanted to be more reasonable, the person I do want to be, I'd say, quite honestly, that he did a very, very good job. And uh, through the seething, I actually enjoyed it. However, it has left me this experience, yes, with some emotional wounds, but also with general interest and, I would say, a a fund of knowledge about the UK Poet Laureates and then also the USA Poet Laureates, because I started getting interested in them as well. So I thought I'd do a whole series of Frank Skinner's poetry podcast in which every poet was a Poet Laureate from one of the two countries. I mean, it's important to include the US because you get a bit more diversity amongst their poet laureates than you do with ours. Gotta be honest. And so um, that's what I'm going to do. Now, as soon as I decided that this series was going to be about poet laureates of the United Kingdom and the United States, one name immediately sprung to my mind. And I thought, what do I do about this? I was experiencing a mixture of excitement and terror. And the name is not the name of a poet. The name is Miss J. Hunter Dunn. Now, to some of you, that will instantly conjure up John Betjeman's poem of 1941, The Subaltern's Love Song. Others might think, what's going on? These are just words. What does he mean? Well, there is a famous, perhaps, uh, John Betjeman, who I should say was Poet Laureate from 72 to 84. Wow, John Betjeman was around in 1984. Incredible. Does this mean I could go to an 80s party as Sir John Betjeman, the Poet Laureate? Hmm, I'll think about that. Anyway, it's his most famous poem. And the reason I'm sort of anxious about discussing the subaltern's love song featuring Miss J Hunter Don is that I would guess and I'm I mean I'm speculating on this but there was a essay by George Orwell in 1942 perhaps coincidentally the year after the subaltern's love song was published I should say by the way that a subaltern is a, a junior officer in the British Army, and we'll, we'll talk more about that 
later. Anyway, George Orwell wrote an essay on Rudyard Kipling in which he described him as uh, a good, bad poet. And a good, bad poet is someone who writes, in Orwell's view, bad poetry very, very well. And what he would call bad poetry is poetry that doesn't stretch the intellect massively, that rhymes, that follows traditional verse forms, has that sort of old-fashioned, unchallenging nature about it. That's what... I'm not suggesting that Orwell was a poetry snob, of course, but that's what he means, I think. I'll give you a couple of quotes from that uh, Kipling essay about um, definitions of uh, a good, bad poem. A good, bad poem is a graceful monument to the obvious. (laughs) So cruel, Orwell. It records in memorable form, for verse is a mnemonic device, amongst other things. In other words, a mnemonic is something which helps you to remember things like um, 30 days after November, etc. A good bad poem is a graceful monument to obvious. It records in memorable form some emotion which nearly every human being can share. Now, I don't know, is that, is Orwell said that's a good thing or a bad thing, that nearly every human being can share the emotion of this so-called good-bad poem. There's a sort of sense of uh, elitism about that, I think, but, you know, we're all guilty of that now and again. I'll give you one more quote from that essay, again about the good-bad poem, Poems of this kind are capable of giving true pleasure to people who can see clearly what is wrong with them. (laughs) So maybe I'll console myself with the fact I do love the Subaltern's Love Song by John Betjamin. I'm assuming that Orwell would have seen it as an example of a good, bad poem. I don't know, but I know a lot of people wouldn't take it See, there'll be people who have already switched off thinking, I'm not listening to Betjamin. You know, I might as well read the verse one finds on a cheap greetings card, they'll be saying to themselves. I don't think that's fair. I do love the Subaltern's love song. I'm looking forward to actually reading it to you because it's such a joy to read. And maybe I can see clearly what is wrong with it, but it doesn't trouble me at all, if what's wrong with it is that it's accessible to a lot of people and it um, it uh, refers to emotions which most people can share, as faults go, not too bad. It's been pointed out to me that A.N. Wilson, Betjeman's biographer, even he said that Betjeman wrote 200 poems and about 30 good ones. But honestly, trust me, if you've written 30 good poems, you can consider yourself amongst the greats. 30, that's a lot. Let's talk about the... uh, Let me read some of the Subaltern's love song to you. The bookmark, if you can hear the bookmark in my uh, John Benjamin's collected poems 
as a story to it in itself because I purchased from the Oxfam shop the Oxford Book of English Verse edited by Christopher Ricks, which is a very fine anthology of poetry. And there was three pieces of newspaper in it, all of which were clipped from the Times from, I think, 2000, and let me check, yes, 2008. And they are, well, they, they centre around an obituary to Miss Joan Hunter Dunn, the woman who actually features in this poem. So it's a great idea to stick that in a poetry book, which I have to say features Betjeman, but doesn't feature that particular poem. Nevertheless, it's now become one of those bits has become a bookmark in my collected Betjeman. I'm going to give you the first stanza. Enjoy. Miss J. Hunter Don, Miss J. Hunter Don, furnished and burnished by Aldershot's son, what strenuous singles we played after tea, we in the tournament, you against me. I'm going to have to carry on to the second stanza. I can't stop myself. Love 30, love 40, oh, weakness of joy, the speed of a swallow, the grace of a boy. With carefulest carelessness, gaily you won. I am weak from your loveliness, Joan Hunter Don. So some of you will have already be thinking, oh, no, this is too, this is too old-fashioned poetry for me. Stick around. That's my view. So Miss J Hunter Don, Miss J Hunter Don, that first line and we've all done that, haven't we? You know, when you are crazy about someone, just saying their name is a pleasure. And that's what this feels like to me. And also the use of miss opens up a world of possibilities for those who love her. At the moment, Miss Jayon Hunterdon, uncommitted and um, not tied down as it were. Again, I'll go back to that Subaltern thing, a Subaltern's love song, it's called. Subaltern is, a, as I said, a, a junior officer in the British Army. And I think because of that, traditionally seen as an insecure kind of a life, not quite one thing and not quite the other. And I think people actually use Subaltern as, as an adjective to talk about a lesser thing. So you'd say, you know, that the garden was very much subaltern to the house if it was uh, not as good as. So I think he set himself up immediately. He wasn't a subaltern, by the way. Benjamin, so I don't mean him. I mean the speaker of the poem. I've established that Miss J. Hunter Don was real, but it's OK to use the real and create a fictional world around them. So, Miss J. Hunter Don, Miss J. Hunter Don, furnished and burnished by Aldershot's son. I mean, they're essentially iambic pentameters, these lines. Ten syllables, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed. And furnished and burnished is a beautiful internal rhyme to read out loud. And she was furnished, I guess, if she was born in Aldershot, it sort of, it produced her. 
and it burnished her, it, it enhanced her, it perfected her. It, it, on a simpler term, it made her tanned and lovely, the older shot son. Something that um, happens a lot in Betjeman is, oh my goodness, he loves a place name. I mean, a British place name, an English place name in particular. I think Betjeman, and I haven't read this anywhere else, so don't see it as um, fully backed up critical theory. But people like to talk a lot about how James Joyce in Ulysses takes the everyday and makes it heroic. So he he takes ordinary people, if such a thing exists, and paints them against the background of Homer's writing to make them also to seem grand and heroic and important. And I think he's celebrated for that in a way that Betjeman isn't, but I think he does do that. I think Miss J. Hunter Don is a heroic figure and a female one, which is fairly unusual in 1941, I think. I know they were around, but they weren't always celebrated publicly. So... Furnished and burnished by Aldershot Son. And that Aldershot, that use of a place name, I think constantly undercuts the heroic. I, when I was uh, a young man living in the West Midlands, there was a local paper called the Smethwick Telephone. And uh, it had a story about a woman who claimed that Martians had landed in her front garden. And it had a picture of a pointing at the spot where the craft had been parked. And I'll always remember the article ended. She watched as the alien craft rose into the morning sky and disappeared towards Dudley. And whoever wrote that knew that the use of that place name made the whole thing comic in that it is juxtaposed with this amazing sci-fi story. And here, the heroic and admirable Miss J. Hunter Don is placed very much a product of Aldershot, which sounds less glamorous. What strenuous singles we played after tea, we in the tournament, you against me. So it was just the two of them playing tennis, and this is the thing that runs through the poem, this idea of separation, of you and I are a bit different from the crowd. And that's always a great way to start a relationship, isn't it? I went on, you'll recall, love 30, love 40, oh, weakness and joy. And I don't want to push it too much, but it's kind of handy in this poem that the scoring system in tennis uses the word love. And love 30, love 40 suggests us acceleration of that love, that excitement. It also suggests that he's getting completely walloped by this woman. Love 30, love 40, oh, weakness of joy, the speed of a swallow, the grace of a boy. Isn't that just like the ideal woman? But anyway, I don't know if you're even allowed to have an, an ideal woman anymore. With carefulest carelessness, gaily you won. And that suggests a kindness, I think, about uh, Miss J. Hunter Don, because she obviously can destroy this subaltern. 
uh, at tennis, and but with carefulest carelessness, gaily you won. So you didn't make it look like it was important. You made it look like we're just fooling around. Don't worry about it because you didn't want the destroying of the speaker at tennis to humiliate him too much. I am weak from your loveliness, Joan Hunter Don. Wouldn't you just love to drop into conversation with someone you've just started going out with? I am weak from your loveliness. Hmm. And you'll notice she's become Joan Hunter Don at the end. Progress. He knows her well now. He knows her a little better after the tennis. And so no longer Miss J Hunter Don, but Joan Hunter Don. You could say, oh, no, he's probably done that for the uh, for the metre of the poem. But no, no, Joan, J, it's all one syllable. It would be good. OK, I'm going to give you uh, another couple. Miss Joan Hunter Dunsey is enjoying now the fact that he now calls her Joan casually. Miss Joan Hunter Don, Miss Joan Hunter Don. How mad I am, sad I am, glad that you won. Now, of course he's enjoying those internal rhymes, and so am I. But um, how mad I am, sad I am, glad that you won. It's almost like he melts as he describes it I'm furious you beat me how mad I am sad I am okay I'm not furious but I am upset about it glad that you won he loves her and it's just he wants her to be powerful and skillful and wonderful and so yes he is glad he realises through his sort of male humiliation, he is actually glad that she won. I don't think he's just saying that to make her feel good because she doesn't sound like a woman who needs that. Now, this next line is one of my favourite lines in all poetry. And it's it's one of those iambic pentameter, 10-syllable lines that's actually 11-syllable, where the poet establishes they don't want to be too tied to the form. But uh, that's not really important. The important thing is, I don't know why, but oh, it just, you know that word evocative? I don't often use it, but I would use it of this. I'm going to give you the lead up to again. Miss Joan Hunter Don, Miss Joan Hunter Don, how mad I am, sad I am, glad that you won, wait for it. The warm-handled racket is back in its press. Oh, my goodness. The press, by the way, is those things, and if you've ever seen them, they're like wooden squares that people used to put on their rackets. I don't think they exist now. To protect the racket, it's like a sort of clamp on the end. But the warm-handled racket is back in its press. Is the most passionate, sensual line, and I have no idea why. It's something about heat and control being back in its press, the idea of passion being restrained. But I love it. I'm going to say it one more time. The warm-handled racket is back in its press, but my shock-headed victor, she loves me no less. So his shock-headed victor, shock-headed had in shaggy-haired. Uh, she really does sound like heroic. 
I was going to read two stanzas straight off, but you know, the best laid plans of mice and men. You know, I'd love to do Burns on this, but I just, I don't feel I can do someone who writes in Scottish dialect because I can't speak in Scottish dialect. That wouldn't be right, would it? Her father's unonymous shines as we walk. No sniggering at the back. Unonymous is a, a an evergreen plant. And like most evergreens, it has a shiny leaf. So if it's there in the summer, then it will sparkle and shine. Her father's unonymous shines as we walk and swing past the summer house buried in talk. So buried in talk, loads of people talking in the summer house, but we're swinging past that. Why? Because just like there was only two of us in the tournament, we are separating off from the herd, Joan and I, because we've got something special that they could never understand. And cool the veranda that welcomes us in to the six o'clock news and a lime juice and gin. <laughs> oh, man. I don't think Orwell would like that bit. I mean, you can't get round the fact that Betjamin is the bard of Middle England. He, he writes about the upper middle classes and he loves that sort of safe on changing world and I feel okay reading about that and enjoying it it's sort of got an anthropological feel because I've never been part of that world and I'm interested to find out what it was like I grew up I think um, hating the idea of privilege and posh people and I've sort of calmed so uh, and called the veranda that welcomes us in veranda obviously is a sort of a glass outhouse thing to the six o'clock news that would be on the radio obviously in 41 and a lime juice and gin one imagines that the uh the six o'clock news in 1941 was not always fun but uh everything's fun when you're in love of course the scent of the conifers now, this to me, the economy of this description, this is about getting ready for a party that night. And you could go on about it, but it's, it's sparse, this, but it says the whole thing to me. He's at this country house, imagine that, and um, he's getting ready for the dance at the golf club. The scent of the conifers, sound of the bath, I bet it was never written to be pronounced bath. <laughs> the scent of the conifers, sound of the bath, the view from my bedroom of moss-dappled path as I struggle with double-end evening tie for we dance at the golf club, my victor and I. So... The scent of the conifers, sound of the bath. It's summer, they've been playing tennis. One imagines the windows are open. He can smell the conifer, the trees outside. His bath is running. He can see the moss-dappled path from where he is, from his window. He's got one of those double-end evening ties. It's one of those bow ties that you tie yourself, which I've never even tried. They look impossible. But, of course, there's subaltern who's selling himself as a slightly sort of 
not totally on top of life kind of bloke. He's struggling with his with his bow tie. For we dance at the golf club, my Victor and I. He's very much, isn't he, um, making Joan a superior being to himself, which I like and love can do that, of course. Then he imagines her getting ready. On the floor of her bedroom lie blazer and shorts and the cream-coloured walls are betrothed with sports. And westering questioning settles the sun on your low-leaded window, Miss J. Hunter Don. Now, on the floor of her bedroom lie blazer and shorts. It's all so fabulously Englishly understated, all this. If you've ever been obsessed with someone, this applies to whatever your preference is, I think you know how your thoughts run about them. And the way he expresses through the heat of his passion on the floor of her bedroom lie blazer and shorts is fabulously understated. And I'm reaching now for that Times Clipping because I'd just like to read a bit, which I just because her her room is a, the wall of her room is betrothed with sports covered in various trophies. I'd just like to read you this. Um, I should say that she worked in the catering department at the Ministry of Information where Betjeman worked during World War Two. And he wrote a letter, a business letter, in fact, to someone who worked there. But at the end of the business letter, he went sort of post-business and wrote, I have fallen in love with a girl in the catering department here who is a doctor's daughter from Aldershot. She was lacrosse captain and tennis champion at Queen Anne's Caversham. (laughs) I mean, it's a different world, isn't it? It really is a different world. So I think her sportiness is part of the the joy. And I love that line. And westering questioning settles the sun. Westering means to be heading west, which obviously the sun does when it sets. But westering questioning settles the sun. Why is it questioning? I'll tell you what I think. A friend of mine always used to say that when he had a first date, He always made it lunch because first date dinner has got too much jeopardy at the end of it. What do we do now? It's dark. We'll be going to bed soon. Whose bed? Are we at that stage? Etc, etc. After lunch, that doesn't feel so menacing. And westering questioning settles the sun. On your low-leaded window, Miss Joan Hunter Don. And it's a posh house by the sounds of it, so a low-leaded window. Okay, and we know it's her house because the walls are betrothed with sports. So this doctor from Aldershot, who's her dad's doing all right. The hillman is waiting. That's classic, classic Betjeman to mention a British motor car make. The hillman is waiting, the lights in the hall. So now we know it's getting properly dark. Sunset has happened. Tension increases. Lovers, potential lovers in moonlight. 
The hillman is waiting, the lights in the hall, the pictures of Egypt are bright on the wall. My sweet, I am standing beside the oak stair, and there on the landings, the light on your hair. Beautiful. Hillman is waiting, so the car's ready to go to the golf club for the dance. It's getting dark. The pictures of Egypt are bright on the wall, never referred to again. Suggests that maybe the dad was a military guy as well, which makes everything else a bit more tense for this insecure subaltern figure who is our speaker. It might just be that they can afford holidays in Egypt, but it's a lovely detail. My sweet, I am standing beside the oak stair. Again, give you a sense of a sort of a grand house. And there on the landings, the light on your hair. This is love. And I think in the next stanza we find out why. By roads not adopted, by woodlanded ways, she drove to the club in the late summer haze. Into nine o'clock Camberley, heavy with bells and mushroomy, pine-woody, evergreen smells. You notice now we've, we've gone into third person, that she was directly, at the beginning of the poem, it was Miss, Hunter, Miss J. Hunter Don, Miss J. Hunter Don, and the speed of a swallow, the grace of a bite. It, it, it starts off talking to her and it moves around a bit. He's talking of her, he's talking to her, but we never really feel she's there when he speaks to her. It's as if he's speaking to some image of her, which he probably conjures up in his love craze. So, by roads not adopted, by woodlanded ways. Roads not adopted are what we would now call probably private roads, or at least roads that aren't upkept by the local council. So maybe roads that most people wouldn't go down, but she knows everyone, it's fine. Or maybe roads that are a bit rough, but she doesn't care. She's a bit like, I'm going to, can I confess something now? We all have particular things that we find. I'm going to use the word arousing. To me, I love an aviatrix. Now, an aviatrix is the term, it's probably out of fashion now, for a female pilot, a female aviator. And I'm thinking specifically of the, the British pilot, Amy Johnson, and the American one, Amelia Earhart. And whenever you see that, there's something about the leather helmet and the raised goggles often combined with a fur collar which I just think is as good as it gets and I think it's the implication of heroism actually now I come to think of it I think Amelia Earhart 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 she wore a white cap which gave her an angelic look it, it was like the angel of Amelia Earhart on one shoulder, the devil of Amy Johnson on the other in her, in her dark leather cap. I bring that up because I think the way I'm sort of drawn to those two heroic women, who both, if you want to Google it, disappeared in mysterious circumstances, feels like the way the subaltern is 
is drawn to this woman. She's doing the driving for a start-off, which wasn't that common, I don't think, in the 40s. He's in the passenger seat, the uh, the subaltern, forever subalternate. And she's great at sport. She's much better than him. She drives down roads other people don't drive down, I imagine, faster than most. She's one of those kind of, you know, speed of a swallow, the grace of a boy. By roads not adopted, by woodlanded ways, she drove to the club in the late summer haze. Into night. Now, this, if anyone says to you, what is John Betjeman about? This one line would say a lot. Into nine o'clock Camberley, heavy with bells. Um, he was a very much uh, Anglican Christian, uh, part of his profound Middle Englishness, I suppose. And it's got that, that, of course, there's a place name which he loves, which keeps everything earthed and stops it getting too grand. But church bells permeate Betjamin's poetry. And it is, it's like he finds it reassuring to have them in the background, that, that godness, if you like. And what a beautiful line, Mush- and mushroomy, pine woody, evergreen smells. That's what's coming into the car. It's got to be a convertible, hasn't it, if it belongs to, uh, to Joan. We're nearly there. Miss Joan Hunter Don, Miss Joan Hunter Don, I can hear from the car park. The dance has begun. So then we know now they've arrived at the golf club. Oh, full sorry twilight. Importunate band. Oh, strongly adorable tennis girl's hand. (laughs) So he throws in another Miss Joan Hunter Don, Miss Joan Hunter Don. It makes such a nice ten-syllable line. It's irresistible. I can hear from the car park the dance has begun. So they've parked, they're sitting there, they can hear the music. Oh, full sorry twilight. Well, it was, the light was on in the house. We thought it was dark, but it's twilight, actually. Still twilight. Importunate band. So importunate is when someone's sort of pleading with you. So they're sort of calling them, calling them into the dance. So the band is pulling them into the golf club. But there is a conflict because what does he want to stay in the car with? Oh, strongly adorable tennis girl's hand. A fabulous muscular femininity. That's what he's, uh, he can't walk away from. And again, it's that separateness that these two seem to have found. Everyone's going into dance. They're sitting in their hillman. And speaking of Hillman and, his, and he, the way he loves brand names and place names, around us are rovers and Austins afar, above us the intimate roof of the car. And here on my right is the girl of my choice with the tilt of her nose and the chime of her voice. On his right, obviously because she's driving, but what a beautiful description of someone you're obsessed with. You know those early stages of a relationship when everything, every part of someone seems special? With the tilt of her nose and the chime of her voice. Stunning. We come to the end. And this is perhaps where I can see, you know, that idea that 
Orwell said that we're cap- these poems are capable of giving true pleasure to people who can see clearly what is wrong with them. This could be an example of that. So we've said, I want, I want to do those last two lines because it's a list that continues across the stanza. And here on my right is the girl of my choice with the tilt of her nose and the chime of her voice and the scent of her rap and the words never said and the ominous, ominous dancing ahead. So the scent of her rap. So she's dressed for the party. She's perfumed. And the words never said. So we know, we've heard the chime of her voice, but it's about those important words, the words that establish their love, if you like. And the ominous, ominous dancing ahead. Why is it ominous? Well, I've always found um, dancing incredibly ominous, but maybe it's because dancing, uh, to me, feels very threatening activity certainly in in those days of courtship there's always people cutting in someone else wants to dance with the person you're in love with you might dance badly it feels like a world where jeopardy is very much increased the dance floor so I'm obviously putting myself on this but as you know I've said to you before on these podcasts it is a meeting of minds and we we the poet shares their attitudes and thoughts but ours of course leak in and meet them not halfway but somewhere on the on the path last two lines we sat in the car park till 20 to 1 and now i'm engaged to miss joan hunter don now that i think if you wanted to criticize this poem you could say that that ends it's like a punchline we sat in the car park till 20 to 1, and now I'm engaged to Miss Joan Hunter Don. It sounds like they sat in the car, everyone else danced. They started off snogging, things got more and more out of hand, and they got so out of hand. And out of hand in f- 1941 is not like our out of hand. But now, inevitably, they feel they should get engaged because they've, um, they've gone so far. I don't see it like that. I think this whole thing, what makes this, I think, a a poem, a sort of exciting poem, is that it's about passion restrained. And we sat in the car park till 20 to 1. I don't know if that is about some sort of sexual liaison. I feel that can just be two people talking in their fabulous separateness where they can hear the rest of the community dancing inside. They just sit in their hillman and talk. It could be that. And now I'm engaged to Miss Joan Hunter Don. And now I'm engaged sounds like a beautiful understated way of suggesting that this aching, this hankering for this woman has come to fruition that is that's what i think so that's the poem that is the subaltern's love song i'm going to read you a bit just another thing from that times clipping that was in um, the oxford book of english verse it's fabulous when you buy second hand books which i'm sure many of you do you never know what you're going to find 
tucked inside. And this is, um, he actually was introduced to Miss Joan Hunter-Don. This is Betjeman now, not the speaker of the poem. The real Betjeman met the real Miss Joan Hunter-Don. He asked to be introduced to her at the Ministry of Information. And when he met her, he fell to his knees to, to be face to face with her, comically, I think, and she certainly took it comically. And um, he, this is uh, different times. He asked, he asked her boss if he could uh, take her to lunch, and he agreed. Lunch, you'll notice, so no pressure. This is what Miss Joan Hunter Don, who I'll say, because I'm holding her obituary, she died uh, Joan Jackson, she did marry, of course, and she uh, was born in October 1915 and died April 2008, age 92. And there are pictures of her from the period um, of the poem. And yes, very easy to fall in love with from a physical point of view. And this is what she says. They went to lunch. In the taxi on the way to the restaurant, he put a copy of Horizon magazine into my hand and said, I hope you don't mind, but I've written a poem about you. I must say I was absolutely overwhelmed. It was such a marvellous break from the monotony of the war. <laughs> it really was remarkable the way he imagined it all. Actually, all that about the subaltern and that engagement is sheer fantasy but my life was very like the poem so it seems and you know i don't like to get into biography too much but um that nothing ever happened between them they actually stayed friends into later life but mainly in a pen pal way and uh she took in some people might say how dare you publish a poem with my name in it but she took it all pretty well and uh yeah, I think he did have a massive crush on her, but he knew that could never happen, and so he just made it happen in a poem. And you must make of that what you will. Just to round off, in that same Oxford Book of English verse that I bore, there is a, a along with the Joan Hunter Don obituaries, there is a photocopy of a poem called The Burial of Sir John Moore by the Reverend Charles Wolfe. Interestingly, it's a photocopy of a poem that's in the book, so I don't know why it's been inserted. It's not, it's not a photocopy of that page in the book. It's from somewhere else. But someone's felt that there should be another copy in there. And um, I only mention that because that was one of the poems, The Burial of Sir John Moore, that Orwell cited as a good bad poem so in my end is my beginning as uh, T.S. Eliot said that was the Subaltern's Love Song by John Betjamin Poet Laureate from 72 to 84 and you may think it's a good bad poem you might just think it's a good poem you might think it's just a bad poem I don't know what I think all I know is I love it and I loved reading it to you Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.